following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. Uh, Jesus is telling this parable very much directed at and pointed at the Pharisees. And uh, the point of all three of these parables is that uh, it, is, it is easier uh, for the sinners to come to Jesus. And that's what's happening. Uh, Jesus is, is attracting all the wrong people, right? The sinners, the prostitutes, the people who were not the religious elite and establishment. And it made the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders angry. And so Jesus is explaining why it's working this way. Why it is that it's the, the lost people, the sinners, who are attracted to him. And why it, why, it, why it is so very difficult for the Pharisees to accept him. And he does it in a way that is kind and generous. He does it in a way that is inviting them uh, yet one last time to turn away from their self-righteousness and find life in Christ. Um, and of course, this parable, as Jesus taught it, was very much pointed at lost Pharisees, at those who were like the prodigal, just as far apart from God's heart as, as the prodigal, as the sinners that they condemned. And so in that sense, it is a story about how lost people come to salvation in Christ. But it also is a parable that I think Jesus uh, intended to be instructive to us who are already followers of Christ. Because the reality is, saved or not, once we come to Christ, it's very easy to walk yet in one of these two paths. Right? We can still continue on and pursue happiness through a life of pleasure, even as a Christian. Um, there's problems with that path. right? Likewise, we can, and perhaps more often the tendency is, to pursue happiness through the path of the elder brother, through the path of performance, by trying to be a good person. And whether you're uh, saved or not saved, Jesus is teaching here that both of those paths are a problem. And so it raises lots of questions about, well, what then is the goal of the Christian life? We kind of get that the goal of the Christian life is not to live a life of pleasure and uh, you know, the life of the prodigal. Most churches teach against that, right? A few don't, uh, and there's certainly heresies throughout the church history where people were instructed that, no, it's actually better to sin because that, as Paul reminds us, shows more grace. But more often, the problem for the church has been how to avoid the path of the elder brother. Um, and it really raises the question, what should our life be about? Right? What is it that, that guards us and keeps us in the, the center path and what, what is that path? What is it that we are to focus our life on? Because Jesus, throughout these parables, makes it clear that, um, that there's dangers in trying to be too good. And of course, that raises all kinds of questions about, well, I thought we were supposed to be holy. I thought we're supposed to be good. I thought we're not supposed to sin. I'm so confused. Is anybody confused, right? We're not supposed to be the prodigal, and we're not supposed to be too holy. What are we supposed to be, Right? Well, Jesus explains in this parable exactly what we're supposed to be. What is to be the focus of our attention in our life? And it is neither the prodigal nor the elder brother. So let's see if we can uh, sort out some of these questions. 
Um, first off, uh, the parables teach us, all three of them, teach us that God is all about seeking the lost, about lost things. Right? Remember the first one, the parable of the lost sheep? The parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sons. And in all of these parables, one of the main points is that it's worth searching for what's lost. And, uh, and there's diligent effort made to seek and to save what has been lost. And uh, the first two parables uh, paint this picture better, actually, than the third. Because in the first two parables, the, the shepherd leaves the 99 and he takes great effort to go searching for the lost sheep. The woman who's lost the coin lights a lamp and gets out her broom and her vacuum cleaner and she tears her house apart searching for that lost coin. Um, So the point is, the heart of God is a heart that's searching for the lost. But we come to the third parable and this this truth kind of gets turned upside down a bit because in the third parable, what happens? The lost son asks for his inheritance. He gets his payout of cash and he goes on a long journey as far as he possibly can from the father. And what does the father do? Does the father chase after him? Does the father hire scouts to go hunt him down? Right? Does the father, you know, spy on him? No. What does the father do? He stays home. Right? He stays home. Uh, well, by itself, if this was the only parable we had, It would be easy to think that God is really not searching for the lost. But because it comes in the combination of all three parables, we know that the heart of God is to seek. But the reality is that there are different kinds of lost, right? There are different kinds of lost. The lost coin and the lost sheep were objects that had been misplaced. That is, they were were physically unaccounted for, right? Their location was unknown. And so it was an easy task, well, maybe not an easy task, but it was a simple task for the shepherd or for the homeowner to search for something that was physically missing. Uh, the lostness of the lost sons, though, is different. Right? They're not just lost in physical space. Their location is not accounted for. They know where they are, especially the older son. Right? He didn't leave home. Uh, we know where he lives. Their lostness is not literal, it's figurative, right? The lostness they have is of their heart. And the truth is that they are lost because they want to be lost. Have you ever searched for something that wants to be lost? Um, That's another challenge, isn't it? It is not easy to find something that's determined to stay lost. And that's the problem of the father who has sons with free wills of their own who make choices of their own, and who choose to be lost of their own will and volition. So it's more difficult seeking for these kind of lost things. Uh, It will do no good for the father to go find his prodigal son, because once he finds him, he's still lost. And he still wants to be far away from the father. If the father tracks him down, what's the son going to do? Well, he's going to go somewhere else. He will make it his goal to be Moving away from the father. And so the same is true for the older, older son, right? Uh, his heart is far from the father, and there's reasons for that. He doesn't want to be with the father. So what it means for God to seek for the lost when it comes to human beings is much more complicated and difficult than simply searching for a lost coin. And that is pictured well in the story. But it doesn't mean that God's not seeking 
He is seeking every lost soul. Right? God's heart is to search for what is lost. And even in this story, uh, the father is seeking his lost sons. And the two pictures that are, are, are this. Uh, verse 20, um, and it is a different kind of seeking, but God is definitely seeking. Verse 20, he says, And he that is the father or the son arose from his pig pen and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father, what? Saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced and kissed him. You see, the father was searching for his son. Long before his son began to turn his heart back towards home, every day, what was the father doing? He was searching, longing, hoping, waiting for that son to take his first turn, his first step back towards his father, right? Uh, we see it also with the older son. It says, but the older son was angry and he refused to go into the house. Verse 28. So his father came out and entreated him. Right? With both sons, you see the father seeking his son, seeking to bring them back. With the older son, he's actually pleading with his stubborn son uh, to come back home. So the father is seeking, uh, but it's complicated. Uh, but beyond that, uh, and God is seeking us, and it's complicated because we are elusive, right? We, we don't want to be found. So God has other ways of seeking us. And he does that by sending out messengers of help, messengers of seeking, right? And uh, the way this works for the younger son is like this. It says, when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose uh, in that country, and he began to be in need. He began to be in need. One of the great messengers of God in our life is to be in need. And need is uh, the thing that God sends us in his searching efforts for us. Right? Now, how many of us love to be in need? <laughs> Most of us don't like this, right? We don't like uh, need and, and oftentimes the misery that need causes. And the prodigal really has need at two levels. Um, first of all, his pursuit of happiness had been what? In the path of pleasure. When he had lots of money, he could buy lots of pleasure. But all of a sudden, he runs out of money. And when he runs out of money, the party's over, right? All the friends and girls and food and uh, all the stuff he could buy with money, when his money dries up, it goes away, right? Uh, he has no real friends, right? He has only friends who love him for his money. Uh, no girls really like him. They only like his money, right? Nobody hangs out at his house. They just come to drink his wine, right? That's what happens when you pursue that kind of life. Money runs up, and uh, all of a sudden, he's without the, the resources to pursue happiness that way anymore. So at, at one level, all of a sudden, his happiness is also dried up. Right? Now he's faced with a much different life. And um, the need for a life of joy and contentment smacks him back in the face. Right? It comes back to him. But on top of that, he's now starving to death because there's a famine in the land. And he cannot, he cannot support himself. And he begins to be in need. He is hungry. He is starving to death. He gets a lousy job feeding pigs. Uh, and it... Uh, and no one will give him help. No one will give him anything. 
Well, this really is God's gift, right? doesn't seem like it at the time, but for this young man, it was a gift from the Father. Because for the first time in his life, he could not escape his unhappiness by buying his way out. He is in desperate need. And as a, as a result of this desperate need, notice what happens. In verse 17, it says, Then he came to himself. He came to himself. Right. It's a great gift of need. Have you ever been there? Right? Things are not going well. Your life is falling apart. It is crumbling. It is self-destructing around you. Everything is going wrong, and you come to yourself. Right? In English, maybe we would translate it, he comes to his senses. It's like, what an idiot I am. Right? My idea of what would make me happy, my idea of how life would work, is not working. And the unhappiness and, and un- misfortune that comes to him is his wake-up call that this does not work. It is, it is really the gift of God that sin ends in destruction. Right? Because if it, if it fulfilled us, we would never seek God. But sin is not fulfilling. It leaves us ultimately empty and hungry and aware of its hollowness. Um, And so with that, the prodigal son now realizes what a fool he's been. And he comes to his senses and he takes survey of his life. And he realizes that he's been on a path of self-destruction. And he realizes what an offense he has been to his father. But here's the catch. Uh, he, He has dishonored his father. He has He has treated his father horribly. But he comes to this realization that the one person in the whole universe who could help him is his father. I had this happen once in a painful way. We'd gone up on a a backpack trip way, way up in the Colorado Rockies. And um, we decided to leave early because it was just miserably cold and we were not having fun. So we hiked down the trail and uh, got to the place where we had parked our, our little Jeep, and uh, the battery was completely dead, completely dead. And we were miles, I mean miles, on this rough four-wheel drive road from anywhere. And uh, there was only one other car in the parking lot. And there was this little, uh, I think, Toyota truck. And uh, we, go, we go looking around the truck, and it's all locked up. And uh, we don't have jumper cables, but we do have a couple wrenches, right? So we get this brainstorm of an idea that if we could break into this guy's truck and, and take his battery out, put it in our car, start it, and then put his battery back, we'd be good to go, right? So the three of us, Mr. Pastor and Mr. Camp Director and uh, Mr. Bible College Student, are circling this truck, figuring out how we can break into it, right? And just and we've been we've been at the trailhead for like all of five minutes. You know this has unfolded, it happened really quickly. And uh, as we're struggling for how to break into the guys this this truck, the owner of the truck comes hiking down the trail and he yells from a great distance, "Yeah, it better be locked." It's like, oh great, we have just offended the only guy in the whole universe who can help us, right? Well, thankfully he uh, he understood our situation and he was gracious, right? Well, that's kind of where the son is right now, right? He realizes the one person in the world who would help him, who would care at all about him, is the one person he has horribly, horribly offended. 
But he knows his dad, and he, and he says, you know, I, I, I've been an idiot. I have sinned against heaven. I've sinned against God. I have sinned against my father. I am no longer worthy to be a son. I know that. I know that. However, I, I need my father's help. My only hope is my father. I will go to him not as a son, but I will go to him as the lowest of slaves. In fact, the word that's used here for servant is a hired hand. And there were kind of different levels of slaves in that day. Uh, and a household slave was really treated like family. It was somebody who lived in your home, who became very much a part of your family, and oftentimes would have great authority and power over your estate. But that's not the word he uses here. Okay? I'm, not, I'm not even worthy to be a household slave, a, a part of the family, uh, but as a, as a slave, because I'm not worthy of that. He goes to the very lowest level of a hired hand. It was the one who would come from the outside, who would work the most menial, lowliest of jobs, would get his pay for the day, and would go back and stay away from the home. So that's all I'm worthy of, right? But I know the nature of my father. I know what kind of guy he is. I think he would hire me as, as a lowly slave, and at least I won't starve to death. And so he arises and he takes his first step back home. So that's what need is all about. God has blessed us with finitude, with needs. God created us and made us this way. Praise God, right? (laughs) Well, we we may not praise God inward, but it is a gift that we we are blessed with all kinds of needs. We need help, right? We need the Father's provision and care. And it's coming to face to face with our needs that is how God draws us back to himself. Um, But there's a problem when we refuse to see our need. And one one of the things about our proud and stubborn selves is that Uh, we are so set against this idea of needing somebody else's help. How many of us guys refuse to ask for directions and just praise God for the miracle of smartphones with GPS, right? It's like been the savior of our life because we never have to ask for directions, right? Because we don't want to need anybody's help, right? It's the older brother. Notice what the elder brother does. This younger brother comes home. His younger brother is having this party. The elder brother's been out working in the field. And why is he out working in the field? Why is he serving his father? Well, he is working hard to be a person who never needs anybody's help. He is determined to be independent and self-sufficient. That is the motto of his life. I did it my way. That's his favorite song. Huge Frank Sinatra fan, right? He's got the T-shirt. I did it my way. I am not going to put myself in a place or a position where I need anybody else's help. And so he's worked hard to uh, obligate even his father to him, right? And we get that from his, his, his dialogue with his father. He says, look, I have, I have served you and I have obeyed you so that uh, you owe me and you have not paid up like you... Like I think you should have. You have not even given me a goat, but you've shown this favor to this rascal son of yours. Uh, He refuses uh, to see his need. 
And what happens, this is what happens. When we feel that we have earned the right as a son, which is where this guy's at, right? He has earned the right to be a son. And he doesn't need his father. His father needs him. He feels that he has uh, put himself in a place where his father owes him and is obligated to him. And what happens when, uh, when things don't go well, when you are confronted with needs, when you've worked so hard to be self-sufficient? Well, what happens for this brother is he doesn't feel his need, he feels cheated. Right? He feels cheated. He says to his father, it is not fair that you have shown this kindness. You've given this prodigal son, everything I've worked for. And you've never even given me the smallest piece of it. I feel angry and I feel cheated. You see the dilemma he's in? When you cannot and will not be aware of your own need for other people, when you live a life that's determined to be self-sufficient and independent, and you work hard to make sure that you never are in need, When things don't go well and don't go your way, the result is you feel angry and cheated. Have you ever been there? I have been there, right? Uh, And for too long in my Christian life, I have lived as an elder brother, where this has been my 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 slogan, my uh, my cry, right? I'm not going to ever need anything or anyone. I'm going to be independent and self-sufficient. And this is how it goes. When we feel this way, we feel that God owes us because we have labored so hard for him and because we've sacrificed so, so much for him. What happens when things don't go the way we want? I remember uh, when I was young, just struggling financially. And we were in ministry. We were serving God, sacrificing for God, you know. And like the elder son, I would say, God, look at how much I have served you. I have obeyed every command. I've done everything you've asked me to. And uh, God plagued me with needs, right? And uh, the, the biggest need, which is the need this elder brother has, his greatest need is he's not happy, right? Bottom line, he's an angry, miserable person. Right? Uh, but be that aside, right? He's plagued with other needs as well. And when you're like that, as I was, uh, full of needs, and I would look around and I'd see other people in ministry. Now, I get people in the world who had good jobs. I would give them the benefit of the doubt. But what really bugged me, just really made me mad, were other people in ministry. Like I had preacher friends who were buying houses and nice ones. And it just, you know how I felt about that? Just like this, ang- just like this elder brother here. It made me mad. I did not like them. Right? It made me furious. And I felt God had cheated me. Right? God, why are you doing this to me? Right? I serve you. I, I, if you compare our lives, I was convinced I served them more. Right? I sacrificed more. I was surely more obedient. And yet they had the nice new house and I was struggling to survive. Right? And honestly, I felt often very cheated by God. I've talked with people uh, here who have sacrificed great things to be living and working overseas, who have a heart to serve God and to be obedient and to take the gospel to the nations. 
and difficulties come into their life. They, they face sickness or the death of a child or huge trials and, and struggles. And they respond with fierce anger toward God. Have you ever been there? That's a sign, an indicator, that you are walking down the path of performance. Right? That you are walking in the path of an elder brother. Because you are convinced you should not need God's help. In fact, God should need you. And if he's not coming through with his part of the bargain, it makes us angry and resentful. And I'm, I'm telling you right now, short, straight, direct, that is not a happy place, right? When you're filled with that kind of bitterness and resentment towards God, right, it's really kind of a bummer because you know you need him, but you can't stand him, right? It's a tough place to be. And um, it's not happy. As we shared last week, these three stories, the theme of them all is, is joy. Right? It's coming to find true joy and happiness in the presence of God. But you cannot find it down that path. Well, how do we get there, right? We kind of know this is a problem. How do we get there? And how do we avoid it? Well, I think we get there real simple because we love to ride pendulums. Anybody love to ride a pendulum? What I mean by that is, you know, we, we, we love extremes. And uh, if, if we're on this extreme over here, we never stay there very long because the pendulum swings what? The other direction, right? And we pass center at, you know, like the speed of light going from one extreme to the other. Anybody else have that, that experience? It's great fun. It's like being on a carnival ride, right? And uh, that's kind of how we are as human beings, we react and overreact to what we were before, and we become the total opposite, which is also just as bad and destructive. Um, so when we come to Christ, um, if we were a prodigal, right, and we lived a very rebellious, destructive life, lifestyle like the prodigal son, and we were into whatever and all kinds of sin, uh, it's very easy when we come to Christ to feel like, well, that was my old life, so for my new life, I'm going to turn over a new leaf and I'm not going to be like that brother anymore. I'm going to be like what? I'm going to be like the elder brother. right? I'm going to be the good person. Or uh, the opposite can also be true. If you were came to Christ out of a very legalistic, rigid, strict background and you heard about grace and that in grace we have freedom and you are free, right? And so you kind of go the other extreme. And you say, well, I can just do whatever, right? Because uh, I'm free and there's grace. Uh, and we know this is a problem for, for the church and for Christians because Paul talks about this in his, in his letters, right? He's got letters to both the Corinthians. Who are they? They were the prodigals, right? They were believers. They were followers of Christ. But they were enjoying their freedom in Christ, Right? To the full measure of girls and prostitutes and wine and drunkenness and immorality and all kinds of stuff, right? And then there's the letter to the Galatians, uh, nicknamed Elder Brothers, right? Who were um, walking the path of the Elder Brother. And Paul speaks to both extremes. And it's easy to see how we get there, right? Uh, and both are destructive, 
The path of the prodigal is a, is a, is a destructive lifestyle. Um, it is not healthy for us to live in unrestrained sin. Right? Paul says all things are lawful, but all things are not good for you. Right? It, it ends in destruction for ourselves and for others. Um, and most of the church understands that. So most churches, I've, I've, I've never been in a church that really preached, um, y- you know, that the path of Corinth is the right way. More often, it's the other extreme that the church gets caught up in, right? Uh, and it's easy to see how this happens, because here's the problem. Are we supposed to be good? Well, it's kind of a trick question, right? Um, Somehow we teach that a lot in church, right? Preachers don't stand up and say, you know, you all are just not sinning enough. You need to just get out there and sin some, right? We don't say that. What do we say? Well, we preach against stuff like sin. We preach against living holy lives. Because the Bible says we're supposed to be holy. So it's very natural and easy to, to swing from the life of a prodigal to become an elder brother, uh, to have this attitude that I need to be a good person and the goal of the Christian life is to become a good person and to live a holy life. Um, and it's true to some extent. We are to be holy. However, uh, the path of the elder brother is not the path to the holiness God intends for us. Right? It's not the path. And it, it is... Uh, I think Jesus is teaching here in these parables, and on this, but much of what he's been teaching and, and communicating up to this point in the book of Luke is this. That actually, if you were to choose between what's more damaging and destructive, the path of the prodigal or the path of the, of the Pharisees, of the elder brother, I think what Jesus is saying is this. We, we should be much more on guard of the path of the... Uh, the Pharisee, the path of the elder brother is much more destructive. We need to watch out because here's the reality. Those guys are keeping their distance. It's the sinners who are finding their way to Jesus. A couple of weeks ago, I talked about this more at length about the identity we have as sinful people that we should have a, own an identity as repentant sinners. And somebody emailed and me said and, and uh, emailed me and said, "Yeah, Tim, I just think you're wrong. We should not have that identity." And he brought up some really good points, and all of it I agree with. Right? Um, we we are not just prodigals. We are not just sinners. Um, but I still kind of hold to this notion that we need to see ourselves. Not, not so much as elder brother good people, but as prodigal bad people. But there's a balance point. Right? There's a piece that is missing from both of these perspectives that we need to come back to. And here's the piece. Um, Jesus says this in the, in the, in the parable. He said, uh, Bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And at the end of his conversation with the elder brother, the father says it again. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this brother was dead and is alive. 
He was lost and is found. Um, I think we need, this is our identity. This is who and what we should be in Christ. People who are lost and found. You're lost and found. Now, now to simplify it, you can say this. You can say, I am found. But here's the reality. If you are found, what were you before? (laughs) You were lost, right? Right? There's no such thing as finding something that was never lost. Uh, If you are saved, what were you before? Well, you were unsaved, right? Um, If you are a saint now, what were you before? You were a sinner, right? Throughout Scripture, uh, both of these things are always put side by side, especially through the letters of Paul. Paul never talks about what we are in Christ without talking about what we were before we were in Christ, right? It's vital that we keep both pieces of that together. We were lost and we are found. We were dead and we are alive in Christ. <clears throat> um, and you see, our lostness involves both the sinful ways that we satisfied the sinful cravings of the flesh. Because right? the reality was, even, the, even the, the best elder brother, if he's honest, craves things in his flesh that are prodigal. And probably none of us, at least I was never that good of an elder brother. I was pretty much an all a prodigal until I came to Christ. Right? I was just a, a closet prodigal. Right? Um, I hid it well, but deep inside, I was driven by the cravings of my flesh. So we need to be safe in that, but we also need to be safe in the ways we try to meet our need to be good and acceptable by our own efforts, by meeting my own needs, by creating my own man-made, self-made righteousness, rather than trusting God to meet my needs through his loving care. And that's really what this parable is about. Um, What's missing in all of this is not your identity as a prodigal or your identity as an elder brother. What is missing this is your identity as a child of grace. What we need to be is true sons. And the true son was the prodigal when he came back home. And I love this picture. Um, Because when he comes back, he knows he's unworthy to be a son. Right? But he comes to the father, and the father uh, runs out, greets him, kisses him, uh, welcomes him in, and he brings him back. And it says that he does this. He says he calls to his servants and he says, quick, bring the best robe and put on him. The best robe in the house, okay? Bring bring my tuxedo. We're going to dress this guy up in my best tuxedo, right? And, And bring my ring and put on him. And shoes and put on his feet. What is this a picture of? Well, there's a lot of debate about what the symbol of all these is, and I'm not going to get into it. But at bottom line, it's this. The father reinstates him completely as a son. Uh, the ring could be, we don't know for sure, but the ring could be his signet ring, his signature to, to draw money from the bank or to buy and sell property. Right? Uh, the robe was his best robe. Uh, he was reinstating him as a son, not as a slave. In fact, the son could never get the whole speech part out about being the whole hired hand and I'll work for you and I'll pay back my debt. Never got that far because that just ain't going to happen. Right? He would receive him only as a son or nothing. Right? 
He wanted his son back. He didn't want a slave. He wanted his son. And the father is incredibly generous in reinstating this unworthy son who does not deserve it. But because the father is loving and gracious and kind, he brings him back as a son. Um, And it's the riches of his grace, right? Incredibly gracious father who's forgiving of all the wrongs that done to him. And he receives him back as his son. Um, But not only that, there's another part to the story that often gets overlooked, and that is the price that is paid. What did it cost the father to do that? Well, it appears that it didn't really cost anything, right? It kind of looks like the father just welcomes him back, makes him a son, life is good. Uh, But here's one of the reasons why the older brother is so angry. Uh, You remember the beginning of the story, what happens? The son comes and says, I want you to divide the property. The father divides it. He gives, uh, by Jewish custom, would have given two-thirds to the elder son and one-third to the younger son. The younger son takes his one-third, goes off, and what does he do with it? He squanders it all. So that's now gone. It's lost. Okay? Younger son comes back home. Father gives him his ring, his robe, makes him a son. At whose expense is he now joint heirs of all the father's property? Well, at the elder brother's expense, right? Now the elder brother not only does not get the goat, right? But now he has to share the estate with his stupid little brother, right? Because now the little brother is once again what? An heir. And he has a right to the father's property. Okay, when the father dies, his estate will get divided again. And the younger brother will get a share. The elder brother paid a price. Of course, in this story, of course, the elder brother wasn't excited about it. But it's a great picture of a better elder brother, Jesus, who joyfully and gladly paid the price so that we could be made sons. And and for all of those of you who are ladies, this is not an insult, okay? Jesus is not being prejudiced here. The reality was in his day, only sons got the inheritance. You didn't want to be adopted as a daughter because there's no money in it, right? We all, male or female, are sons. In other words, we have rights to the, uh, the property, the assets of the father, all of his wealth and treasure. Right? And how did we get that? Well, through the sacrifice of Jesus the Son. Right? As Mike shared, we're, we're entering into the season where we're looking at Easter, where we celebrate his sacrifice, right? the price that he paid so that we could be, once again, children of God. Right. And you see, that's what's missing in the path of the elder brother. The elder brother is a path where I am self-sufficient. I do not need God. Right. And one of the ways that we know this is true in our life is how we think about sin. Right. When you sin, when you fail, when you mess up, what do you do to yourself? I love what the prodigal does. I love this about prodigals. For prodigals, sinning is quite easy, and confession is so simple. Have you ever known real prodigals? I remember uh, when I was a kid, uh, my babysitter, uh, her son was a prodigal. And I didn't know what a prodigal was, but, I mean, this guy was it, right? And uh, one, one of the best illustrations of this, one day we were, it was right before time to go to school, and I had, uh, was taking my, my, my softball and bat to school to play softball. And he said to me, can I see that for a minute? I said, Sure. And uh, at the back of their house was a big, huge field. 
Um, and at this time of year, it was mostly kind of a swamp, just a muddy, murky swamp, right? And he goes over to the fence, and he takes the ball, and he throws it up in the air, and he takes the bat, and as it comes down, he smashes that ball as far as he can out across that muddy field. And I was just like, <gasps> my softball, right? And then he put the bat down, and he says, don't worry about it. And he hopped the fence, and he ran through this muddy field to get my softball and came back, and he was covered literally to his waist in mud. And it's time to go to school. And I was just awestruck that he could do something so incredibly defiant. It's like, wow, that's like the coolest thing ever, right? Because I could never, ever do that. And I don't know what his scheme was. I don't know what he was thinking that day, but he was not going to school. And this was his way out, right? And he marched to his mom, and he was a mess, and, and it was done. I mean, he wasn't going to school. It's like, wow, that is so cool. <laughs> and yeah, that's prodigals, right? Prodigals can sin so easily and guilt-free, right? Have you ever known people like that? I have never been like that, right? Because I'm not a prodigal really at heart. I'm an elder brother. And when I sin, what do I feel? Horrible guilt, right? And that's godly, right? Wrong. Wrong, right? Uh, it is self-righteous. Now, you should, and I'm not saying we, we are not guilty. When the son came to himself, when the prodigal son came to himself, he knew he was not worthy. But notice this. He says, I am not worthy to be son, but I'm going home, and I'm going to present myself to a father as a slave, even though I am not worthy. And then he gets up and he crawls on his hands and knees all the way back home, right? No. He gets back home. He says, Dad, I'm not worthy to be your son. Give me your whip so I can beat myself. Is that what he does? No, but that's exactly what elder brothers do, isn't it? Right? We sin, and then what do we do? We confess, and we confess some more, and we repent, and we feel bad, and we torture ourselves, and we torment ourselves, and we beat ourselves up. Why? Because we're elder brothers. And because we're so convinced that we've tainted our image. See, the prodigal doesn't care. He's a sinner, right? He's got nothing to lose. It's only the elder brother that feels horrified not because he has made himself unworthy, but because he's tainted his reputation. See, it's self-driven. It is a righteousness that is self-centered and self-focused. And it shortcuts grace. And you see, what we need is we need um, the path of celebrating grace. The only hope for us to stay centered and to avoid these two horrible paths is to daily, daily remember God's grace and to celebrate both his generous acceptance to us and the incredible price that he paid to receive us back as sons. Um, We need to be people who worship and who love and who stand in awe at God's grace. The prodigal could do that because he knew what a screw-up he was. It was the elder brother who had such a hard time with that because he refused to be in the place of debt to God. That's why I think it's good for us to think of ourselves as sinners, as lost and found, as dead and alive, made alive through the incredible grace of God. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. 
For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org.